0: Good morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day. Thank you for letting me take a bit of time off last week. It's not my favorite thing to do, but you have to do it. So, Last Sunday, our worship service happened on Interstate 10. And uh, we sang, I don't know, 10 hymns and listened to some sermons. And we prayed and um, thought of all of you and I uh, wish we could be here, but uh, you were in our prayers. So we have a lot to do today. We're going to um, be finishing up Module 2. This is Session 14. And generally speaking, um, I put a week or two between modules. So next week, I guarantee you we will do something. I don't know what that will be. We may do a Q&A. I may do um, something else, I, a couple of things I like to do. But I, for those of you who are doing the homework and trying to finish this up, um, I usually like to put a week or two in between, so next week we'll um, I'll let you know next week what we're doing. I, I usually decide about on Saturday, and we'll figure that out. And then uh, after that, we'll get into Module Three, which will just for a little uh, little coming attractions. We'll begin with Hamartiology, the study of sin. Um, in our systematic theology, and we'll get into some of the bigger Old Testament books, Ezekiel and Daniel and so forth. But speaking of big Old Testament books, today we're going to do Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. Just a very broad overview of these um, pretty massive books. So let's pray, and then we'll get into these uh, prophetic books. Our Father, we thank you so much for this Lord's Day how glorious it is to wake up and know that this day is devoted to you, that we leave the cares of the world behind, that we gather with your people, that today we are the ecclesia, the, the assembly of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all that we can look forward to today, the hymns that we will sing, the word of God read and preached, and the fellowship that we enjoy with one another. Lord, I am so thankful for this church. I'm thankful for every believer who's here I pray, Lord, that this is a day of refreshing, a day of joy, a day that um, we just soak in the Word of God and that we're changed and that we're made more and more like Christ. Let this day be honoring and glorifying to Christ. May He be pleased with our efforts to offer ourselves as living sacrifices this day. We pray in His name. Amen. So, uh, just one more reminder here, as we're going through Bible survey this is a lot more meaningful to you if you if you actually read the books before we get to it because I'm not giving you, I'm not giving an outline of the book and so forth. I'm not telling you the content of the book as much as telling you how to understand the content of the book. Um, so the, the design of these lectures or talks is that you've read it before. And if you haven't, that's fine uh, if you're just auditing um, but you just, you'll just you get way more out of it. So um, the way to know where we'll be next is whatever book we left off, we'll go in order. So that's, that's really easy. But today we're going to take a pretty big chunk and do Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. And the reason we can kind of lump these three together is that they have a lot of similarities. And so you'll kind of see that as we go. So let's dive right into Isaiah. <clears throat> Isaiah, the, the title, uh, we have the title Isaiah, it just means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh will save. Um, very similar to other, other names that have the name of God in them, Yahweh is salvation. The author is obviously Isaiah. Uh, in, if you ever read a commentary on Isaiah and it disputes the authorship of Isaiah, that's only happened in the last century so, um, in terms of theology, one to two hundred years is like infancy. It's nothing. And so, anything that's been questioned just in that last time period is, generally speaking, pretty irrelevant. So, um, one of the ways we know Isaiah is the author is because Isaiah says he's the author. So, I mean, I think that's pretty clear cut. The dating of the events goes over quite a, quite a time period. Goes from about 739 BC to 681 BC. So we're we're talking about 60 years or so, um, all of Isaiah's ministry. From chapter 40 on, Isaiah is addressed to God's people in exile and who will return from exile. And if we have time, we'll we'll look at one particular passage there. Chapters 1 through 5 are basically an introduction to the whole book. And you get some samples of different prophecies. Uh, in fact, if you want to kind of understand the flavor of all of Isaiah, chapters one through five gives you that flavor. But then chapter six is the chronological beginning of Isaiah's ministry, his call to the ministry, the famous uh, scene in which he appears before God in the throne room of God. And he is, uh, he, he hears the question, uh, who will go for us? And he answers, here I am, Lord, send me, um, Used by many missionaries to go to the mission field. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't what, uh, what the context is. The context is God calling Isaiah. Um, I, I don't know how many missionaries throughout history have sort of, with sentimentality, opened their Bible and closed their eyes and put their finger on Isaiah 6. Here I am, Lord, send me. And with a tear in their eye, said, I guess I'm going to go to the ministry. Um, that's not the point of the passage. Uh, but it is the chronological beginning of Isaiah's ministry. And I always find it interesting that when I feel discouraged in the ministry, I uh, read Isaiah 6 because I know he was in for six decades of unfruitful, unsuccessful ministry, and God told him up front, this is what your preaching is going to do, nothing, and do it for 60 years. So I think, well, you know what, if if Isaiah can do that, I think I can hang in there. So um, what are the themes in Isaiah? Obviously, Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, The root words for holy in Hebrew happen 68 times in Isaiah. The holiness of God is a huge theme. Isaiah, in fact, um, probably under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, coined the term the Holy One of Israel. That is a term that uh, even the demons used of Christ. That they called him, you are the Holy One of Israel, you are the Son of God. But Isaiah coined that term. Which is, if I could take a little side note, I feel I have time today for side notes. Um, If you are of the ilk that believes that God is done with Israel forever as a nation, we have a small problem with that. One of the names of God is the Holy One of Israel. So now you're going to erase a name of God if you've erased Israel. So I've never heard an adequate explanation to that. So the name of God uh, is given as the Holy One of Israel, and it's part of his guarantee that yes, judgment is coming to Israel, but restoration is as well. So you have Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Um, I don't know how many of you were here when we preached all the way through Isaiah. We did it in 75 messages on Sunday nights, but you saw that it is an intensely theology-proper-laden book. That It is just soaked with uh, the attributes of God. Then you have the... Uh, Theme of the sinfulness of Judah, southern kingdom of Judah, and Yahweh's judgments. The sins of Judah have been mounting now. And you get to chapter 5 at the end of the introduction, and it's a love poem. It is God tending his beloved vineyard that keeps giving bad grapes, bad grapes, bad grapes. But um, he'll keep the root of the vine. He's going to cut most of the vine off, but he'll keep the root. And in fact, you see that theme throughout Isaiah, the root um, even the the root then becoming Christ Himself, the dominant theme of the, all the opening prophecies: judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Um, Isaiah begins; it's pretty dark at the beginning, and uh, you kind of have to get past chapter forty before you begin to see light at the end of the tunnel. So you have the sinfulness of Judah. This is I'll put it this way: this is the the laser beam focused on the people of God, but Isaiah also. Um, goes broader than that the third major theme the sinfulness of the nations and yahweh's judgments Uh, chapters 13 through 23 uh, judgments on the nations now a lot of those judgments have been historically fulfilled already but it does tell us something The book of Romans says that a man's conscience should be enough to drive him to God that he knows that he is not right before God. Even if he doesn't have a Bible, even if he doesn't have a law, there's something in him that should drive him to know that he is not pleasing the one who created him. Now, that's not taking into consideration the doctrine of regeneration and so forth. But in other words, um, if you've heard the old argument, well, what about people that have never heard the gospel? The Bible says that all men know the truth in their hearts. That all men are, are understanding that there is a God who made them. And so based on that understanding, God expects the nations of the world to serve him. That is his clear expectation. And so you see the sinfulness of nations, Yahweh's judgments on the nations. Now, little, another little side note. When you get to some of the restoration passages in Isaiah... Uh, And I'm I'm not recalling exactly what chapter it is right at the moment. But there's one little section that God basically, he, he uses this metaphor like he has three sons. And his three sons' names are Israel, Assyria, and Egypt. And in other words he pictures a day when the nations of the world are now following Christ and they are his children as well they are his nations as well and um that of course pictures what we would Called the millennial kingdom of christ where the nations are serving christ now as a whole and so that's a that's that's a wonderful thing to see if somebody says well how can gentiles serve god and but israel still be his chosen nation isaiah explains it israel is his chosen nation and yet there are gentile nations that are called his own as well so uh, all of you who are parents know this you when you had two children you didn't say oh i'm out of love i can't love anymore Every child you have, you grow in love with them, and it's endless, and that's the way God's love is. So I just wanted to point that out that, that God expects the nations to obey Him, and He will restore them as well. And then you have the theme of the salvation of Yahweh. and this is a obviously the major theme in Isaiah, so I want to expand on it just a little bit. You have God called the Light. Chapter 9, the light has shone in the darkness. You have the child of chapter 7, chapter 9 as well. You have the shoot and the branch. Chapter 11, you have the stone. Chapter 28, chapter 32, you have, and this is big in Isaiah, the servant. Chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, the end of 52, and all of the famous Isaiah 53 is the servant of God. You have the Redeemer of Israel, chapters 41, 43, 44, 47, 48, 49, and so forth. And you have um, a theme we could call, still under the salvation of Yahweh, the second Moses. The second Moses. This is a, a person who is endued with Yahweh's spirit. He will establish justice. He is called by Yahweh, especially he will give a new covenant. He will be rejected, and he is humble. Uh, These are great comparisons to Moses. Uh, My very last message in Deuteronomy, which is coming up a week from tonight, by the way, um, will give a small comparison of Moses and, uh, and the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll do that in detail, so you might look forward to that. But who are all these people? The light, the child, the shoot, the branch, the stone, the servant, the redeemer of Israel, the second Moses. Well, this is Christ, of course. You could call Isaiah the gospel according to Isaiah. It is entirely possible to come to faith in Christ just reading Isaiah. And in fact, countless Jews have done just that. Uh, I've told the story before, but I used to go to a a dry cleaner that was run by a Jewish woman who had to be 190. Uh, She was just... I don't know why she was still working, but she was working hard. And, and we would talk about the Lord and she would say, Old Testament only, Old Testament only. And so I asked her, you know, what she thought about Isaiah 53. And she said, oh, we don't talk about Isaiah 53. Because it's so clearly Messiah. And it's written in the past tense, which is very disturbing to them. Um, because that means Messiah has already come, which is true. So, uh, Isaiah is the gospel according to Isaiah. It is the place where you see um, the great uh, call to salvation. Isaiah 55: come, it is the great call to come to God. And that is, in fact, quoted in the last gospel call in all of the bible at the end of revelation 22 is a is a reissuing of the invitation from isaiah 55 so what did uh what did the new testament writers think of isaiah it was the gospel so uh, perfect continuity all through scripture then of course you have the theme of the spirit of yahweh um, the spirit of god you can't again uh build an entire theology of the Spirit of God without the help of the New Testament but what the Old Testament says of the Spirit is completely true and we certainly get a very robust um, theology of the Spirit in Isaiah. And then you have the sovereignty of Yahweh. I don't know how anybody can read Isaiah and not get the sovereignty of God. I'll just give you one example. 150 years before he's born God prophesies through isaiah that a guy named cyrus is going to be born and he's going to lead god's people out of captivity three problems with that or challenges first of all nobody named cyrus was around second of all israel wasn't in captivity and third of all uh, th- there was no reason to think they would ever be in captivity things were going pretty well at the beginning of isaiah's ministry and yet isaiah said This guy named Cyrus will be raised up by God. And God says it in the first person. I will raise up Cyrus. And he says it over and over again. And of course we know from uh, Ezra and Nehemiah that that's exactly what happened. That, That the Persian emperor Cyrus is the one who let Israel go back to their homeland after the exile. You have the theme of trust and faith. How many times? Have we as Christians found uh, comfort in Isaiah teaching us to trust the Lord to have faith in the Lord? And then you have the theme of covenant. You have to have the theme of covenant because Isaiah is all about God's coming judgment because they broke covenant with God. So major themes there, and that's that's really kind of the short version. What is the purpose of Isaiah? Yahweh, who is holy, will not permit unholiness in His people. So he will therefore deal with them in such a way as to chasten and purge them and make them fit to participate in this program of extending his rule over the Gentiles. Let me read that one more time and then we'll explain it. Yahweh who is holy will not permit unholiness in his people. So he will therefore deal with them in such a way as to chasten and purge them and make them fit to participate in his program of extending his rule over the Gentiles. Um, If you are convinced that Israel is done as a nation, then Isaiah doesn't make any sense, because Isaiah is all about the fact that God will restore, God will bring Gentiles into the kingdom, and Israel will be the lead nation. I don't think that's that hard to understand, to be honest with you. We understand capitals, right? Right? Uh, Sacramento the capital of California we understand Washington DC the capital of our nation well why not have a capital nation of the world that would make sense in in a one world government run by the Lord Jesus Christ And that's exactly what's going to happen. And Isaiah um, predicts this. You get to the glorious end of Isaiah about the new heavens and the new earth. And you recall Isaiah 65 and 66 kind of melds together prophecies of both the millennial kingdom and the new heaven and the new earth. They kind of compresses them together. And so you see um, kind of the final program, which is the great thing about Isaiah. He doesn't end without hope. He ends with hope. Now Isaiah is unique in all the Bible in that it helps you understand the structure of the Bible itself. Chapters 1 through 39, the basic theme is the wrath of God. That's the basic theme of the entire Old Testament, 39 books. And then you have chapters 40 through 66, the redemption of God. That is the basic theme of the New Testament. And so Isaiah is a wonderful little mini picture of Old Testament and New Testament. Now, um, the chapter numbering system of Isaiah is not inspired. Those, were, those numbers were added centuries later, but I'm glad it worked out this way. I, I think it's kind of a nice thing for us to, to remember. This is, um, I just wanted to show you this, and you, I, I'm not going to talk all the way through this, and you can download this um, online. But this is a a chart I made when we preached through Isaiah. And so you can download this if you want. Let me just point out a couple of things. I don't have this in my notes. Um, You see this big black line right there. That is the major division from Isaiah 1 to 39 and then 40 uh, through 56. And so uh, just going down here, the second line, you have judgment, but there's future hope. Now salvation and future hope. You have Judah and her neighbors, sort of a small microcosm. And then you have, though, salvation or Israel and the entire world. And so the the scope gets bigger. So I have in here, if you want to download this, the the dates um, that are are relevant, purpose statement. Slightly different purpose statement. Israel and Judah are warned that judgment is coming for their sin, but someday God will save a remnant and bring a perfect king to give salvation and reign over them. And then I put some more themes in there. And I would uh, highlight one more time the major theme, the kingly messiah. So uh, that might be a helpful chart to you. I think charts are really useful. Um, If you ever get your hands on charts, keep them. Um, And and even uh, get some charts. uh, There's uh, uh, some wonderful charts you can just get on on Amazon. Uh, Charts of the Old Testament, charts of the New Testament. One of the great things about charts is that they don't generally argue theologically with each other that much. Because all they are is representation of fact. So I hope this chart is helpful to you next time you read Isaiah. All right. One of the biggest books in the Bible, and we did it in 15 minutes. Not bad. Jeremiah. Jeremiah, by word length, is the longest book in the Old Testament, if I remember correctly. Title has always been Jeremiah. The author is Jeremiah. And unusually, um, this book is given through Baruch, who took down dictation from Jeremiah. These are uh, uh, literal words from God that Jeremiah said. This is what God has said. Write this down. The dates of the events, 627 B.C. to 586 B.C. There's uh, a lot of events in Jeremiah not in chronological order. Uh, That's not the point of Jeremiah. So you might keep a date chart handy um, if you're walking through this book. Jeremiah is a, is a wonderful prophet. He's given us so many uh, great prophecies, not the least of which uh, we'll get to here in just a moment is the most important one for us. But here's some of the historical and theological themes. You have the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Yahweh. Once again, I, I know you can make that the theme of every book of the Bible, but Jeremiah seems to point this out just a little bit more. You have the sin and judgment of Judah and the nations. I told you this is going to sound similar. So you read Isaiah and Jeremiah together and you get a lot of the same themes. Chapters 2 through 29 are all centered on sin and judgment. Reading Jeremiah 2 through 29 is like swimming underwater for five minutes. It's just, it's dark and it is, it is difficult to get through because it's, it's just um, this, the sin and the judgment. Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah felt that as long as they were keeping the outward forms of worship, that God was obligated to bless them. That was one of their spiritual problems. They're enamored with the temple to the point of worshiping the temple. Kind of got things backwards there. They equate spiritual strength and favor with the existence of the temple. And so, what is going to be one of the judgments of God? It is going to be to destroy the temple. Because the temple itself has now become an idol. And so you destroy that. Um, you destroy idols. Then you have the theme of false prophets, especially in Jeremiah 23. And I would add here that the false prophets are Israelites. They're, they're the leaders of Israel. Um, in fact, Jeremiah 23 is a great warning to shepherds. It, it starts off talking about, woe the shepherds who scatter the sheep. And that that verse is very important to me as a pastor to to be careful. Then you have uh, the persecution of Jeremiah and the complaints of Jeremiah. He's kind of a a complainer. Here's how Jeremiah worked, and I can kind of relate to him. He feels deceived, not knowing the ministry would be so hard. It's like, hey, wait a minute. I didn't know it was going to be this hard. And in private to the Lord, you hear him complaining, but he is obedient in his public ministry. And so I, I I relate to Jeremiah. He's very human. He's not presented as uh, some sort of perfect prophet. He's, he has difficulties, and he expresses these to the Lord. And then you have the theme of the future restoration of Judah and Israel. Jeremiah chapter 50, um, <clears throat> verses 4 and 5. In those days and in that time declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah shall come together weeping, As they come, and they shall seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion, with faces turned toward it, saying, Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will never be forgotten. I want to point something out here. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, shall come together. The split kingdom, first of all, was never God's will, and and he's going to undo that. But here is... I think an important little key phrase, weeping as they come and they shall seek the Lord their God. What does this tell us? This tells us that this is a time of an internal reality of faith that is beyond anything that they as a nation have ever experienced. What does this also tell us about the nature of repentance? Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. When you say, I'm sorry, you are You are saying, I feel the emotion of sorrow. But it's possible, according to the Apostle Paul, to feel sorrow and yet not repent. I'm sorry that I'm feeling bad. I'm sorry that I'm going through something difficult. I'm sorry that I'm experiencing the consequences of sin. But sorrow that leads to repentance, according to Paul, is that which leads to life. This is sorrow that leads to repentance. They're weeping, and what are they doing? They're coming back. They're coming back together. Repentance now involves action, and so it is entirely reasonable that when you are repenting of something, it means more sometimes than just saying, "I'm sorry, I did that. I'm sorry, I said that." It might mean needing to do something to demonstrate that sorrow, to repent with actions. When you uh, when you uh, hit somebody's car. And you say, oh, I'm sorry about that. That's fine. But what do they expect? They expect you to pay for that damage. That is part of repentance. And so they're weeping as they come. There, there's not a sense of, well, you know, you, you should understand that the, the kingdom had to split because of this, this, and this. There's no caveats. There's no conditions. There's no um, uh, explanations. There's no uh, mitigating circumstances. It's just, I weep at my sin. That's it. There, there's no excuses at all. Internal reality of faith, that's what the restoration will look like. Uh, we've never known a nation of Israel filled with repentant Christians. We've never known that. That's going to be a glorious day and, and we're going to love that. And we'll be part of it. There's the future restoration of the nations. Jeremiah 48:47. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far is the judgment on Moab. Now, this is unusual. In our thinking, Moab is pretty much like the the garbage to Israel. They were were a a people that were always a thorn in the side of Israel. They were an illegitimate people to begin with um, based on uh, sexual sin all the way back in Genesis. They were a people that even at one time, God said, I won't let anybody from Moab be in my temple up to 10 generations, no one. This would include Ruth, by the way. Ruth participated in the nation of Israel. If she was obedient to that particular edict, then she would not have participated directly in temple worship. And yet here, I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days. Now I know from our our standpoint, we think of certain nations on earth as inherently more evil than others. And that is actually true. When, when a nation becomes a rogue state and when it's a failed state that now just becomes a giant, uh, a, a giant gang that happens to live in palaces, that is true. Uh, we think of nations like Iran. Iran would just as soon blow Israel and the United States off the map if they had the opportunity. We know this and understand this. But do you understand that Iran someday, uh, formerly called Persia, will be a chosen, saved nation of God. And we can't fathom that. Even right now, there, there are believers in Iran who meet secretly, and they will be among those that lead that nation to salvation someday. It's, it's a tremendous thought. And so um, one of our things as we read the news is pray for the restoration of those nations. It won't happen now. It'll happen when Christ returns, but what a great prayer. Similarly, Jeremiah 49, 6, afterward I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites declares the Lord. Moab, Ammon, they were related. They were both the, the, the illegitimate offspring of, of Lot. And yet, again, like the Moabites, God will restore them. Which is really funny because God never chose them in the first place. He's going to give them grace. It's not like they had a covenant with God. He's simply giving to them the benefits of covenant relationships. Just because he's gracious. Which of course gets us to kind of the, the the major point of the whole book. And that is the new covenant. The new covenant is the, the pivot point of the whole book. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. By the time Jeremiah 30 and following happens... Two out of the three deportations from the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon had already happened. You had the first one in 605 BC, the second one in 597. Those are are already done. And so there's just one more coming, the big one in 586 when the temple will be destroyed. But Jeremiah 30, 31, 32, 33 are God's words of hope to an Israel that is primarily already under judgment. Um, By the time uh, Jeremiah writes these chapters, Daniel uh, and his friends have already been long taken away. They were taken away in 605. And so they're already gone for decades. But now Jeremiah gives the only hope for Israel is the new covenant. And so any time in Jeremiah where it seems that their restoration is the initial return, um, I would say that's not the case. Because, uh, yes, they wept as they came, and yes, for a time, they turned back to the Lord. But how many generations did it take for Israel to begin uh, apostatizing again? Basically one. And so they they began going down the road of um, disobeying the Lord once again. I wanted to do something just a little different with Jeremiah. I want to make a little comparison here, just to show you. It'll probably be easier for you just to download this. But there are some glorious comparisons between Jeremiah and Jesus. And I'm going to give you a reason for these um, comparisons here in the moment. Uh, just to read through them, um, they're very similar historical settings. When Jeremiah and Jesus lived, very similar. Jerusalem is about to fall. For Jeremiah, that was going to happen in 586. For Jesus, it was going to happen in AD 70, about 30 year, 35 years after his ministry. The temple was about to be destroyed. Israel had fallen into formalism in worship. They were external only for the most part. Both Jeremiah and Jesus had a message for a people that they loved. Both of them wept over Jerusalem. And both of them condemned the commercialism of temple worship. And so very similar ministries. Both were accused of political treason. Both were tried and persecuted and imprisoned. Both foretold the temple's destruction. Both were rejected by their people. Both were tender hearted. Both knew what it meant to be lonely. And both enjoyed unusual fellowship with God. Now, why is this important? We would not say that Jesus, or that Jeremiah rather, is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, the technical term which means a definite uh, picture, because the New Testament would have to say that Jeremiah was a type of Christ. Uh, Christ being the anti-type. But it does show, look at all of these things that Jeremiah had and yet, remember, he was the one who felt deceived that ministry was going to be harder than he thought and he was the one that complained in private. What this shows us is that the Lord Jesus Christ in his role as prophet, he is a prophet, priest, and a king, in his role as prophet, he is the perfected version of what a true prophet of God ought to be Jesus never complained he never felt deceived he came from heaven to earth fully knowing what the Lord was going to allow to happen to him and so I love the fact that yes we love Jeremiah but Jesus is the perfected version of Jeremiah the the, the what the prophet of God really ought to be what's the purpose of the book I know we're doing a lot today and you're good listeners Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians because of Judah's breaking of the Mosaic Covenant, especially spiritual adultery, that is idolatry. Nevertheless, Yahweh's rule is assured through the New Covenant, also the Abrahamic, the Priestly Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant. And we've done those covenants and we'll do them again. One more time, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians because of Judah's breaking of the Mosaic Covenant, especially spiritual adultery, Nevertheless, Yahweh's rule is assured through the new covenant, also Abrahamic, priestly, and Davidic covenant. And remember, we've said before, the covenants uh, are the, the wheels upon which the, the action of the Bible rolls. That that's how the action rolls forward. Just a little note here, what is the priestly covenant? If you're not familiar with that, it's the least known covenant in the Bible. But it was a covenant given to Phinehas, in Numbers 25, at the end of 40 years of wandering, and you can read Numbers 25 to see this, it should be seen as separate from the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant ends at the cross. But God's promise to Phineas is that there will be a Levitical priesthood ministering in the temple of God perpetually. That's not currently happening, but that covenant remains in force. Um, Jeremiah 23, or 33 rather, 20 and 21 makes it clear that the priestly covenant is still going. It's still in force. It's not happening at the moment, but it is still going. What this looks like in the future is very unclear. The best hint we get is Ezekiel 40 through 48, in which we see that during the reign of Christ, the temple sacrifices are reinstituted. Not... For the atonement of sin but so that Israel has a chance to do a do over and to obey God like they should have the first time and now to enjoy all the blessings of God because of their obedience so who has to preside over a temple in the millennial kingdom and who has to preside over sacrifices Levitical priests so there will be men that the Lord Jesus raises up who are descended directly from Phinehas that's going to be pretty amazing because I bet none of them even know who they are And the Lord Jesus saying, guess who your great, 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 great grandfather is. So that's just a little side note when God makes all things uh, come together the way he originally planned. What's the literary structure? We'll keep it very simple. You have Jeremiah's call, chapter one. By the way, he shares one thing with, uh, with John the Baptist, and that is that both were called from the womb. Both were filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. So what does that make God makes him sovereign he does what he will with whom he will how he wants to then you have the future of Judah with this massive section in chapters 2 through 45 and if you've read through Jeremiah recently you you recall that the chapters are long you say well Isaiah has 66 chapters Jeremiah only has 52 yeah but uh, the 52 chapters are very deceptive cuz you just turn page after page and wow we don't get to a chapter title for a while here Then you have the future of the Gentiles, chapters 46 through 51, and then you have Jerusalem's fall in 52, and that really is the climactic end of Jeremiah, which makes sense because Jeremiah also wrote Lamentations. Lamentations is rightly tacked right onto the end of Jeremiah because it basically picks up the story from Jeremiah. And so let's, let's talk about this. The title in Hebrew is simply the first word, how. How is this thing happening? The the Talmud, which is a compilation of Jewish civil and ceremonial law, first called it lamentations. The Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Latin Vulgate, which was translated in the third or fourth century, rather, um, AD, simply calls it tears. We don't use the word lamentation very much anymore. You know, when you, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, you don't say, excuse me, I need to go have lamentation. You cry, or if you're a man, you turn away and pretend not to cry, and then that one little tear comes down. But lamentation is different than sadness. Lamentation is not, it shouldn't be understood just as sadness. Uh, you, you go to a restaurant, and you see on the menu, oh, my favorite dish is not available tonight. You're sad, right? That's, a, that's sadness. Lamentation is grief to the core of your soul such that you don't want to live anymore. That's what a lamentation is. It is is just utter despair. It is not being able to get away with the blackness of the the emotion that you're feeling. And so it's a deep, deep understanding of, of grief. The author is Jeremiah. The date of Lamentations, 586 B.C. Jerusalem was destroyed in July of 586. The temple was destroyed in August of 586 by Nebuchadnezzar. One of the reasons this is so bad is that nations saw gods as going after each other. And so if if my little god's army could go take down the temple of your god, then I my god has defeated your god. And so the the shame in all this is that Nebuchadnezzar believed he defeated the God of Israel. Now, read the book of Daniel to see what God does to Nebuchadnezzar about that. Um, That's a separate story. But in the eyes of the world, the deities of Babylon had defeated the deity of Israel, had defeated Yahweh. And so God is dishonored by Judah's disobedience and now people have watched tens of thousands of soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. They've seen the smoke of burning uh, cities. They've lived a hand-to-mouth existence. Uh, other places in the Old Testament tell us of, of eating their own children that have died of, of just horrible starvation, horrible circumstances. It was a terrible time. And Jeremiah saw all of this. He was there. He was a witness to this. And so what are the themes of lamentations? The pain of Yahweh's servant. Just the the agony that Jeremiah himself went through and he represents the agony of all who would see the judgment of God come. That's the second theme, the judgment coming from Yahweh. You know, I, I think this is a good lesson for anyone who thinks that they're going to fool God or thinks that God is just going to give them a little slap on the wrist and then let them into heaven because after all, you were a pretty good kid and, and you did some nice things. The judgment of God is infinitely worse than we could ever imagine. I mean, there are just chapters and chapters and chapters in Jeremiah and in Isaiah and, and in other um, of the prophetic books just outlining in exquisitely terrifying detail how God will judge. And it's It's beyond comprehension. And so judgment from Yahweh is something that should never be taken lightly. Then you have the sin of Yahweh's people. Jeremiah confesses the sin of Israel. He, he plays the part of the priest. He, he tries to intercede. He is a mediator of sorts. He confesses the sin of Israel in, uh, in lamentations. And then you have the arrogance of the enemy. There's this sense of frustration that a completely pagan nation executes God's judgment. There's this sense of Jeremiah, why them? Why Babylon? This is very similar to Habakkuk chapter 1 where Habakkuk goes to God saying, have you seen the injustice in Jerusalem? Have you seen the horrible things that are happening? And God says, yes, I have. And I'm bringing the Chaldeans, this fierce and horrible people, and they're going to come faster than the wind and they're going to decimate Jerusalem. And Habakkuk goes, hang on a minute. Why them? They're even worse than we are. And so Jeremiah in Lamentations is frustrated that babylon gloats about its power and gloats about its strength and part of jeremiah's prayer is that god would return justice on israel's enemies how dare babylon come against us and then of course you have the hope of restoration right in the center of chapter three and at the end of chapter five what is the purpose of lamentations Yahweh's servant lamented, remember, deep grief at a core level. Yahweh's servant lamented Jerusalem's great destruction caused by her sin, and he gave a statement of repentance with a hope of restoration. Yahweh's servant lamented Jerusalem's great destruction caused by her sin, and he gave a statement of repentance with a hope of restoration. God is faithful to his side of the covenant, and he fiercely enforces his covenant. He is not Santa Claus who just says, I'll just wink at sin. He enforces the covenant because he's loyal. He's faithful to himself. Lamentations also does something else. It uh, prepares the reader for the concept of later judgment. Um, We think that, well, that judgment was bad. That was just the first one. When's the next one that happens? A.D. 70. When's the one that happens after that? The one that happens after that begins the great tribulation in Revelation 6. And so you see this increase in judgment over time. But also, Lamentations prepares us for the gospel. You will never face that sort of devastation. If you're in Christ, this is not your reality. If you're in Christ, you'll never face that sort of grief and desperate hopelessness. Um, The judgment of God fell on Christ and on Him alone. Literary structure, I have it up here. It, and it's, it is it uh, is chiastic in nature. I know you all know that word. I know that Darren taught about it last week and we've done that in here. But you'll you'll notice that um, the center of the book is the most important part. And I'll get to our favorite passage there in a moment. You have the ruin of Jerusalem in chapter one. It just tells the story of what's just happened. The wrath of God is explained in chapter two. The request for mercy happens in Chapter 3, now you have a review of what has happened, the siege that had happened in Chapter 4, and then this final request for restoration. What's the most important part is the center in the chiastic structure, the request for mercy. What is one of our favorite hymns that we sing from Lamentations 3? Great is thy faithfulness. And that's, what, that's the conclusion right in the center that Jeremiah comes to. Your mercies are new, what? Every morning. And that's Jeremiah sitting on a hill looking at Jerusalem in, 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 in ruins and smoking and in flames. Great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. So to me, that's a great lesson. And I, I actually think Lamentations is very useful for you to read when you're in a down time which is about six days a week, right? Lamentations is so useful for us because first of all, it gives perspective. Okay, you know, my hometown hasn't been decimated by a nuclear bomb and I haven't watched everybody I love die and maybe get eaten. I've never seen all of my loved ones taken away in chains. I've never seen a million people uh, killed in front of me. I've never seen that. So my little life is not as bad. And the second thing Lamentations does is that it it teaches us that if Jeremiah can sit and look at the ruination of his entire, everything that he knows, everything that is his reality, and yet say that your mercies are new every morning and great is your faithfulness, then I can do that, right? And so those are a great place to go is Lamentations 3 and just reading your way through that. And, and you definitely get the flavor of Jeremiah going, "This is not fair, i don't like this; this hurts, and yet at the same time, in the midst of his pain, he expresses his his very very profound faith in God. so lamentations is uh, actually very, very encouraging, and I hope that you'll take time to read it. It is uh, by considered by some almost part of the wisdom literature. yes, it is uh, definitely uh prophetic in in that genre. But why would we consider it part of the wisdom literature? Because it reads very much like Psalms. It's one giant poem. And, um, and so Lamentations feels like a really long psalm. And so it should give you that same sort of comfort. I don't know another church where anybody would be dumb enough to go through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations in one hour, but you guys can do it. We have uh, about three or four minutes for some questions. What, what questions do you have? Yes, Nate. Sure. So the the question is, um, when the kingdom split, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, that was not God's will, and yet that's what happened, and nothing ever happens outside the will of God. So how do we explain that? Um, There's a lot of different labels that theologians have have put on this. Um, Some have called, uh, they've, they've given the label of the permissive will of God. The permissive will of God says the things that he has willed that he allows Um, what would be a great example of this was it the will of God for Job to get nailed by Satan in the grand scheme of things no because Job was a faithful man and he didn't deserve that that's kind of one of the big arguments of Job but in the permissive will of God we even that's a great word permission because what does God do with Satan I give you permission to do this much to Job you can't touch his body. And then, and then Satan comes back with the argument, yeah, touch his body and then he'll curse you. And God said, okay, you can touch his body, but you can't kill him. And so you see the, the permissive will of God would be like a leash. That's a very, very crude way to talk about the will of God. But it is a leash. But the leash always fulfills the overall providential will of God. So let's go back all the way to the Garden of Eden. Was it the will of God Was it his decree that I'm going to make Eve sin? No, because God never causes sin. Was it his overall plan that Eve was going to sin and part of his permissive will under his sovereignty that that's what was going to happen? Yes. Did Eve have a real life choice? Yes, she did. Was it part of the permissive will of God that she made that choice? Yes, it was. How does that fit? I don't know but i do know this that the wrath of god the mercy of god the grace of god and the kindness of god could never have been displayed if it were not for sin and so um what do you do when you're at a stoplight and you get like so you get a little bit crazy like wait a minute am i actually making this decision to turn right or left or is this god is this his is this his will well you're in the middle of his permissive will. He's given you the opportunity to make that choice. And yet, whatever choice you make was under his overall providential will. Was it a real choice? Okay, I'm about to turn right. Wait a minute, I'm gonna fool God. And we left. He already knew you were gonna do that, right? Was it your choice? Absolutely. Was it God's providential plan that that's what you were going to do? Yes. And we hit a wall right there and let it be Okay. If you sin, you're responsible. That's what you need to know. If you are saved, God is responsible. That's what we need to know. So was it God's will in the sense that in the overarching plan from Genesis 1, 26 through 28 that the plan of God is for mankind to be fruitful and multiply and then sin comes into the world and so he creates a nation Israel and through Israel was to come uh, the, the Holy One, Jesus Christ and through Christ all the nations would come to faith so that we could return back to the Garden of Eden. Was it his will for that nation to split? Yes, because that was part of his overall plan. Was it pleasing to him? No, because it was based in sin. So from a human standpoint, not his will from it was his permissive will but from the overall standpoint it did fit his plan uh, and we know this uh, in Deuteronomy we talked about this last week in Deuteronomy or two weeks ago rather that when God gives these they seem like hard and fast prophecies this is what's going to happen to you in the future but what about the, the, the guy with his wife and three little kids getting ready to cross the Jordan look I just want to build a house and plant some crops what do I do with all this? The secret things belong to the Lord. We have the law, which is not secret. We have the Bible, which is not a secret. And so we obey and then let his, his will be worked out. So uh, if that answer sounds a little vague, it's because that's as close as we can get. Um, there's lots of different labels to that. I think the permissive will of God and the providential will of God, those are two good labels that, that are helpful, but others have given other labels. Good question. What, what other one? This is when everybody's like, oh, no, I have an itch. Don't raise my hand. Yes, Logan. So Jeremiah 11, to oh, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. 11. Uh, is that the, I know the plans I have for you? Yeah. yeah, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. He does, because he knows his plan for Israel. It's that simple. If you have that, on, on, if you have that verse on your wall, in your house, um, you're not in sin, because God knows the plans that he has for you as well not the same as Israel. Um, you don't want to be part of the plans of Israel because the plans that he's talking about is that I'm going to crush you for millennia before I restore you. And even when I restore you, it's only going to be a few of you. So uh, if you want to pray that, you can just say, thank you, Lord, that I'm in that little remnant that you saved through Christ. So um, I will say this, Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven is the best-selling verse in America on July 3rd every year because oh this is uh, I know the plans I have for you because America is God's nation I think we're about as far from being God's nation as we can get the only thing godly about this is it says the word God on our money which is a complete contradiction now so um, no America is not in the Bible unless you see the smoking ruins of Babylon that may be as close as we get so uh, I'm keeping the one way ticket to the Middle East because that's where it's going to be safe when Christ is here um, ironically isn't it so, no, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven wonderful verse, but it is for Israel, and we should keep it in that context. So, good question. Any other questions? All right. Well, I, I'm just always so impressed, again, that you guys uh, sit through this. We'll... We'll do something different next week. We may do something as simple as a Q&A because you, you seem to like doing those. And then, um, But I've got a couple other little topics I might want to go through as well. So we'll take one or two weeks off uh, and then jump into module number three. So why don't we pray briefly. Thank you, Father, for this time we've had to at least just touch on the truths of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations. My prayer always, Lord, is that for all of us, The next time we get to read those glorious books that we would have a greater understanding and we would go with with more knowledge and more understanding, Lord. We thank you that in, in all of those books we see Christ represented at some level or another and we see that the sin of Israel points us very clearly to the cross. Our sin points us clearly to the cross and we cling to the blood of Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness that you have given because of your sovereign will. That you, according to 1 Peter 1, caused us to be born again. It was your will. It was your perfect initiative. And so we give you thanks for that this day. We pray in Christ's name, amen.